great to worship the Lord this morning? Um, Peter is uh, going to continue as we have been joining him in his second letter. We are now in the second chapter, and um, he is in the middle of an ugly description of false prophets who are attacking the church and undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we will complete the chapter this morning, although the chapter will not be done with us after we are done this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them uh, to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14. We left off there. We really did the first part of that verse as we concluded last week. Today we continue with the rest of the chapter. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. So, what did I say? I can't run this and that. I'm just discovering this the hard way. I also don't seem to be able to make it work no matter what I do, no matter how hard I practice. There we go. 2 Peter 2.14. It makes the whole morning just fit. Um, no, it's, uh, don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. Stand up. The words will be on the screen up there. Misty knows what she's doing, and we'll get through this. Begin with verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. He's speaking of these false teachers who's been his discussion all week long. He has uh, began chapter 1 with this marvelous exposition of the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the purity and the trustworthiness, the absolute fidelity that we have in the word of God. And now he's come to these false teachers who are anything but those things. He says they have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to waller in the mire. Thank you. Be seated. Before we pray, I'm going to do something this morning that is a first. I've not done this since I was in fourth grade. In the 50 years I've been preaching, I have never done it. But today I'm going to read to you a poem written by me yesterday. It will immediately become clear why I waited so long. I base it on this passage we just read. Three animals, a donkey, a pig, a dog, 
the apostles' tool to disperse the liar's fog. Found in 2 Peter's letter, they are beast tales to make us better. Disney, Aesop, Narnia, Charlotte, and Wilbur, all just myths, entertaining with their tales of beastly wordsmiths. But for one talking snake and Balaam's donkey, to think that animals can speak is just malarkey. But that one father of mules, often known as a jack of all trades, that equus asinus who faithfully aids, was suddenly verbose and spoke concerning his greedy master's need to do some turning. Oh, babe, my corpulent, even-toed, ungulate sow, bacon and ham, even pickled, pickled feet, better than cow, edible and delicious spare ribs and pork chops I gladly swallow, yet, dear clean hog, why return to muck and wallow? Man's best friend, the proverbial hound, Best guide for the blind to be found, patient, loyal, trainable, used by nonprofits, but watch out when she vomits. There, that's done. Eat your heart out, Shakespeare. Peter, through this whole chapter, has been very clear in his intent. He is warning Christians of the damage and the danger of false teachers. And clearly, there's a lot state. We need to hear from the Lord this morning. We need to hear him speak to us. We need to hear him as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. We need not just warnings about the dangers of those who might mislead us and who would be false teachers among us, but we need the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us and to our hearts and reveal to us anything that needs to be brought to apprentice, every false idea, every wicked practice that would be promoted by that, that snake who whispered in the garden, trying to bear to God's image bearers alive. By God's grace in this hour, we need our hearts and our minds to be washed by the word. And for any and all who have not yet received Jesus Christ, who trusted him, we need to pray that they might believe on him today and his promises and receive from him eternal life and eternal freedom that will only be found in him. Would you pray with me? Father, our hearts are uh, in need of your grace and your help and your empowering to even hear your word today. We ask you to move wonderfully and powerfully and sovereignly in this room, in these moments, in the ears and the hearts of all who hear these words. We pray that your son Jesus would be exalted that the horror and ugliness of sin would be exposed. And the only but blessedly wonderful solution to all of our deepest needs, that the cross of Jesus would be realized in our hearts today. Do with us as you need for our benefit, but more than that, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. So we start, we start with the donkey story. Donkeys were an important commodity and throughout the history of the world till today, but in the ancient world they were particularly significant. There are at least 86 references to donkeys in the Bible. I think there are more. But of all those references, only one of them ever spoke. And the man that he spoke to was named Balaam. It happened during part of the early history of the people of Israel. They were not yet to the promised land. 
But by Peter's day, this story of this speaking donkey and Balaam, who he spoke to, has become proverbial. It is, it is full of understood meaning by everyone who has heard the story. It was sort of like Nero fiddling while Rome burnt, or, or the warning of the Trojan horse, beware of Greeks bearing gift. The name Balaam had become a warning about a man who was privileged by God, and yet who sold that great privilege for his own profit, for his own desire for wealth. The story is told in that Old Testament book, the book of Numbers, chapters 22, 23, and 24. For the most part, when you just read it, if you just casually read those three chapters, they're very interesting. But Balaam comes off sounding almost righteous. You have to read it very carefully. Balak, the Moabite king, was uh, not willing and not going to do anything to aid the people of God who are being led by Moses. They're coming to the end of their wilderness trip, traveling. They're moving on towards the land of Canaan. And Balak has noticed that other tribes have tried to stand and oppose them and inexplicably have been totally defeated. And so desperate for a different outcome for himself, he sends some of his messengers with an offer to pay this man named Balaam, by now a well-regarded diviner and seer. He is known for his ability to either bless or to curse, and that those blessings or curses were powerful. Balaam, we discover, is a man who does know the living God. He speaks and hears from Yahweh himself. He already knows that the ability to curse or the ability to bless ultimately is not going to be decided by him, but by God. And so they come with this request from King uh, Balak. He says, I'll pray about it. He prays about it, comes back the next morning, and he gives them a very clear answer. Nope, can't help you out, can't go with you can't curse these people. God says these people are blessed people. Later, Balak sends more messengers, more important men, and a bigger offer. He is not going to take no for an answer. They say, come and curse these people. We will pay you anything. And Balaam seems right on, says, sorry, <laughs> I really am sorry, but I can only do what the Lord says. And and even if you gave me all the gold and silver you had, all the gold and silver you had, let me pray about this some more, and I'll give you an answer in the morning. The next morning, though, he still gives a, apparently a clear and honest answer, saying he has no power to curse these peoples. He says, I'll tell you what, I'm still going to go get my donkey, and I'm going to go meet your rich king, Balak, and let's see what we can work out. It's funny, you greedy heart. It's going, you can even try to pray and never hear the things that the Lord's really saying. It's clear to me in this case that the Lord did not tell him to go to make this journey because the very next verse, Numbers 22, 22, says God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now, if greed can make you hear things that the Lord never said, then it can also make you blind to things that you probably ought to be able to see. Things that even a dumb donkey can see. As he is traveling with his donkey, some other people, heading towards King Balak's place, the Lord's angel stood in the middle of the road. The donkey sees him quite clearly, does the only thing he can do. He detours off the road, heads off into a field to avoid the angel. And Balaam, who sees nothing, takes his staff and beats the donkey until he gets him back on the road to continue the journey. 
The the passage narrows, and once again, the angel shows up in the road, and and the poor animal has to go to the right or the left. He he pushes to the left in the process. He sort of crushes Balaam's leg, and there's another donkey beating. Finally, in another even narrower passage, where there's no room to move at all, the angel shows up. The donkey again sees the angel, has no other choice. There's nothing else to do. He just lays down. And what does Balaam do? He takes that stick, you stupid Jethro. The scripture says in verse 28 of Numbers 22, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and he said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam says, no. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. I think the implication is that donkey's just saved his life. And he bowed down, and he fell on his face. Now, there's more to the story, and we should notice the story continues, that the Lord says to Balaam, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse to me. And that's the the thing we must take away from this, Balaam's perverse heart. The Lord does allow Balaam to go on and rendezvous with King Balak, and and Balak urges him, of course, to curse the people of Israel, but as much as he wants to because it means money, he's unable. No curse, no cash. Three times, big to do every time, lots of ritual, lots of stuff. Every time he seeks to try to do it, he ends up only cursing the people of God. We know that he wanted to curse them. We know that not so much from numbers, but we know it from what Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, 4 says, Because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you, but the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. So three times, Balaam blesses Israel. Balak, ready to pay for a curse, will not pay for a blessing on his enemies as he sees it. Balaam wants the money, but if God can make a donkey speak with a human voice, he can make a greedy prophet only able to speak a blessing. So Balak doesn't get the curse, and Balaam doesn't get the wealth. Now, there's another part to this story that I don't know if it's true or not. There's a Jewish tradition, a pretty strong one, that after this event, we're simply told in the Numbers account that Balaam goes away someplace. But according to Jewish tradition that was told and probably being told in Peter's day, Balaam bound his way to Moses. And he tells him about the three times that he blessed Israel. I would wonder how he told that story. But he told it, you know, I blessed your people three times, and I'm sure he was expecting some money. That did not happen. And if that is what really happened, that explains what we do know absolutely happens next. The people of Israel had God's blessings. No external enemy was going to stop them or hinder them. But it turns out that Balaam, who can't curse them, has another way to destroy them, one that helps you immediately see why this fits here in 2 Peter 2. He would undermine them from the inside. Moab, if you will, instead of attacking, infiltrates Israel with sexual allurement and their idolatrous practices. 
So Numbers 25, verse 1, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. There would be severe discipline for God's people, everyone who was involved in it. But it also becomes clear that this whole thing that happened with the Moabites not attacking but trying to, to become friends and more than that was a deliberate plan. It was a deliberately strategy, deliberate strategy planned by the Moabites. Numbers 25:18, they says they have harassed you with their wiles with which they beguiled you. And before it's done, all the plotters of these Moabites would face judgment at the hands of God and his people. It also becomes clear that Balaam was probably the mastermind behind the whole plot. And he is judged too. Numbers 31.8, they killed these kings. They also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Numbers 31.16, behold, these on Balaam's advice caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. And so through all generations, Balaam becomes this, this character who, who, to mention his name, is synonymous with someone who knows things about God, who, who seems to be a servant of God, but for his own greed, is willing to subvert God's purposes. And so you get all the way to the last book of the Bible, and you hear the Lord Jesus himself speaking to the church of Pergamum. Revelation 2.14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam. Who did what? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Peter sees these false teachers. He sees how they are seeking to destroy his church. Greed is their motivation. He sees the spirit of Balaam. People as blind and hardened in their sin as that ancient man. False teachers who had less discernment and insight than the jackass that Balaam rode around on. A donkey spoke more helpful words than the words that they were trying to speak and peddle to the church of Jesus Christ. So that's what we read, 2 Peter 2, verse 15. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked by his own, for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now the question comes, why? are Christians, born-again believers, followers of Christ, who've been taught by probably a number of the leaders of the church, including Paul and others who've had a great influence in this area, but certainly are being taught by the no, no less than the Apostle Peter, the, the, the titular head of the church. Why would they, someone listen to these guys? Because they promised a lot. They promised a lot, but in the end, everything they promised turned to sand. It turned to nothing. But Peter says next you could understand if you lived in the first century probably easier because any one of those times who ever made any traveling knew that, that a long journey you would take all the supplies and water and food you could take but there weren't going to be a lot of stops on the way where you'd be resupplied. It was not unusual at all that you'd be on some journey and you've drunk every last drop of water you've got, used all that you've got and, and you're still not to a place where you can be refurbished and, and so you look down the road and, you, and then you see a what appears to be a spring, an oasis, and it's, it's real and it's there. And you can, in your mind, you can hear the bubbling water and then you get there and it's dry as a bone. And then you look up and you, you see clouds gathered in the sky. It looks like a storm cloud. Oh, there's going to be rain and then it just dissipates. It all blows away and only dryness remains. Balaam is like these teachers that they are speaking they promise a great deal, but they produce nothing. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mist driven by 
of storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. So why would you listen to them? I tell you, there's another reason you listen to them. It's the same thing we've talked about already. He says in verse 18, they speak loud, boast of folly. We've noticed all the way through how, how arrogant, how certain, how bold, how, how confident they are in what they have to say. And I'm telling you, when someone has confidence in what they say, it's hard to overestimate that power on other people. Have you ever known someone whose life motto was always confident, sometimes right? Don't point. Stop it. But if you can get online or you can get a lectern or you can get an audience, whether you're a politician or a supposed preacher or a teacher or someone else, and you say something and you're absolutely certain about what you say, there's undoubtedly people are going to say, well, you know, he seems, she seems so confident. It's the absolute absence of any doubt that, that makes you think, well, maybe what I once thought, maybe it's just not right. I mean, they're so sure, and I, I don't know that I'm really that sure myself. They're so knowledgeable, and they're so smart, and they don't hesitate a bit here. That's what these teachers were like. And yet they don't have any ability to deliver on what they promise. Look, a spring of water ahead. It's going to be wonderful and glorious. Uh, there's nothing. Oh, look, clouds. The storm's coming. Oh, it all blows over. Now, you notice what they promise specifically. It's something that every human of every generation of all times have wanted. They, what they promise is freedom. It's freedom. But now we move into the next stage of the story. They're not going to get freedom. They're going to get dogdom, pigdom. Verse 18 says, They enticed by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promised them freedom. Now, we've already dealt with some of this earlier. We noticed that they uh, had promised the people freedom from accountability. They had said, despite what Peter has said, uh, and, and all the Christian truth has said that there's going to come a day at the end of history, there's coming a day when we're going to stand before the Lord, there's going to be an accountability for our life. And these people said, no, no, Jesus isn't coming back. There's none of that going to happen. There's not going to be any accountability, no judgment. Do whatever you want to do. That's why Peter's already made it clear. You remember back in chapter 1. He said, I know what's coming because I've seen a preview of it. I've seen the Lord Jesus Christ, not just as he was clothed in his flesh, but I saw him in that moment when that, that clothing of flesh was removed, and I saw him in his glory. I saw him the way he's going to look like when he comes back in glory. And believe me, this Jesus is not one you want to trifle with. He has made that case. But these teachers say, no, no, don't worry about it. Not, nothing like that's going to happen. Nothing, none of these things they say is going to matter is going to matter. False prophets in the Old and the New Testament were always marked by saying, oh, no, this, this whole idea of judgment, nothing to it, it's no big deal. If, it, if there's any of it to it, just it, it, don't worry about it. And people want to be like that. Warn people that there's coming a day when you're going to give an account for your life. And they'll great, great confidence snare at you. Oh, my God, it's just not like that. You know, my God is not like that. What they mean is, I don't want God to be like that. We all want freedom. You're bombarded every day that you can have freedom. You can live for freedom. You hear it in a thousand ways. You be you. Be your authentic self. Believe in yourself. Follow your heart. March to the beat of your own drummer. Don't let anyone get in that way. And of course, 
You buy into that, then it follows that pretty much I can live any old way I want to live. I don't have to answer to anyone. I can have freedom. And these false teachers are saying that, and more than that, they're being more specific. They entice by sensual passions of the flesh. After all, it's your body. Nobody else's body. It's your body. Do what you want. You love the way you want to love. You define love. Have sex with whoever, whenever, however. You can love them. You can leave them. You can throw off the shackles. You know that whole Christian morality thing? That is so yesterday. We have moved on from there. That's freedom. There's nothing new about that philosophy, but it is still powerful and still popular. The question is, where does it lead? And I can tell you it never leads where people think it leads to which is not freedom, but dogdom and pigdom. Second Peter 2.19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This freedom that's being offered always leads to a slavery. And he defines slavery for us. He says, whatever overcomes a person... Now, it never feels that way when you you start down those roads. But where you end up is never what you thought it was going to be when you started that way. Now, I know what immediately comes to mind, and it should come to mind. We think of, of addictions, nicotine, gambling, opioids, pornography, sexual promiscuity, alcohol, gambling. I can imagine that Balaam thought, you know, if I get enough money... I get enough of power that I could get from this, this gift that I have. I can do, I can be, I can have anything. I can do anything. I'll be free. No one can touch me. Ask Harvey Weinstein how that works out. You know, it's not just, just horrible the things he's done over the years, but you read the story to realize this man, what he had become, what a shriveled up human being he had been reduced to. A year ago, there was no one in the world more respected and more looked to as an authority than Bill Gates. Yet we discover that there was at work in his life things that were ruining what any thinking person would understand are the most precious things in life. And I suspect he'd give several billion to go back and undo what has been exposed and what's been working in his life all these years. see, it always leads that way. It never starts that way, but it, it leads to places you can't imagine. And then one day you wake up and, and now you're seeing prostitutes or you're stealing drugs from other people's homes or, or you're masturbating on a Zoom call with a legal analyst on CNN. And we call that freedom? That's not freedom, friends. That's slavery. Now, there's a whole lot about this passage that we're going to need to circle around and say, and I want to be clear this morning, just because you have a bad habit or struggling with a bad habit doesn't mean you're going to hell. That's not the, that's not the heart of the gospel. There are things where every Christian, serious follower of Christ, you better pay attention to this, but don't misunderstand it. And the truth is we all have some bad habits, don't we? And so there's a part of this we all need to be warned by. There are many things that can come into our life that even of themselves are good, but they become powerful distractions and keep us being being faithful followers in Jesus Christ. Food can be one of them, can't they? Binge-watching TV. You subscribe to one of these movie channels and all this stuff. That is designed. It goes from one thing to the next thing. You can spend a whole, you can spend your life right there. Video games. Video games. 
Same thing. You're checking your phone. You text. You email. I check my text every two weeks. I've told you that. My emails. Social media. Am I being noticed? Now, you know, these are things that there's a place for that we need food. It's fine to be communicate and engage with others. All that can be good. But let me ask you this morning. Let the Holy Spirit ask you and point to you the truth. Do you use them or are they using you? I will tell you the devil's lie always comes this way. He says you can be completely free. You don't have to answer to anyone. You don't have to serve anyone. It's your life. Do with it what you want. You are free. The Bible never says that. It says it's not possible. And that's why it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the only kind of real freedom you'll ever have. When he becomes sinner and you respect him and honor him and love him for who he is, then all these other things you become a steward over. And by his grace and power, you use them to bless others and for his glory. And there you'll find freedom. Only the slaves of Jesus Christ can know that freedom. Well, Peter brings in the dogs and the hogs to show us how slavery's sin slavery is always going to be worse than you think. Now these are some gum swallowing verses. Verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first We're going to circle back to this next week. There's much to be said about it. And it'll be important that we do that. Because if that doesn't send off some alarm bells in your little Baptist mind, I don't know what will. And let's re-ask the question this morning simply, why worse? Because their hearts are hard. You ever met someone who once was clearly identified as a Christian, outwardly, had their life lived that way, were involved in God's work and God's purposes. You, you, all these, and now they've have, they have moved away from the Lord. They, they seem to have no place for him in their life. Maybe they've even turned their back on him and try to talk to them about their need to, to come to Jesus. What are they going to say to you? I'll tell you what they're going to say to you. I've had those conversations many times. I, I know that. Hey, I went to Sunday school. I've heard all of that. I, look, I know the verses. I got baptized. You can't believe the number of sermons I sat through. I, there's nothing you can tell me I don't know. I'm just telling you, I, it, it, I know all your answers, but Jesus doesn't work. I'd rather talk to someone who's never heard the gospel ever than someone who's now in that state. It is terrifying. Verse 21, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness. And after knowing it, turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Now, right away, hear this. This is not an admonition to say, let's, not, let's be real stingy with sharing the gospel. Don't share the gospel with people. I don't think that's the point we're to make here at all. It does mean we're to be careful. It does mean we're to be honest with people. It does mean people need to know that when they come to Christ and, and are born again, it's not an end. It's the beginning of everything. And discipleship must follow. And they need to know from the beginning that there is... There's a cost to be counted. That when you follow Jesus, you're not taking the easy way, you're taking the hard way. And except for His grace and His power in you, there's no way you could make it. Jesus was all the time, read the Gospels, 
He was all the times making it harder for people to follow him. Jesus did not look out on those great crowds that followed him and said, look at this, look how they love me. They're all Christians and they're all saved. And That's not what he said. He said, are you sure you want to do this? Are you really sure? Have you counted the cost? Do you know you're going to have to deny yourself every day and take up a cross every day? Do you know there's going to be suffering in following me? Count the cost. There's a verse in Hebrews 10. It's worth many sermons. But it's right there. It's plain. It's in black and white. We dare not discount it. Not people who believe the word as we do. Hebrews 10, 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. My friends, slavery to sin leads to a picture that's almost too ugly to visualize. So let me help you. Dogs and pigs were never for anyone in the first century. Cute little farm animals or nice household pets. I joke about stinking dogs. And yes, you can love your fluffy and all that stuff. This is not what that's about this morning. But let's be clear, when when Peter talks about dogs and hogs, these are dirty animals. Dogs were scavenging animals. Both of those animals were unclean to the Jewish people. The whole image, just by bringing them up, is meant to be nasty. And they are. Verse 22, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. The dog reference is really a quote from the book of Proverbs. It's a a proverb. And we all know what he's talking about. If you've ever had a cat, you've had a dog, you've watched them cough up something, vomit something up, and if you don't watch it right there, they're they're right back on what they vomited up, and they're sniffing at it, and then they're licking it, and then they want to lick your face. (laughs) Or you take a pig, and you wash him down, get him nice and clean, and then... What? He will return to the wallow in the mire and getting dirty again. He'll roll around in the mud in his own feces every time. That's the picture. And Peter wants you to see it. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to smell it. He wants you to shudder at it. Now, I do believe, and we'll say more about this next week, I believe in the eternal security of every true believer in Jesus Christ. I absolutely do. But I also believe in the perseverance of every true believer in Jesus Christ. And I believe God gives passages like this, and this is by far not the only one in the Bible. He gives us passages like this to help us in that work of perseverance. There are some of you who are going to hear these words today, and you're going to say, ah, whatever. (laughs) Interesting, big stories. has nothing to do with me. And I fear for those people. But if you're here this morning and the thought even would cross your mind that I might even consider for a second not following Jesus. Or if that moment comes someplace in the future where you think maybe I'm not going to continue on in this thing of being a follower of Christ. And I pray that you'll think back to this passage this morning. And I hope and pray that you will think do I want to go back to the vomit I belong to Christ. I'm not to use my body like this. 
My mind and imagination is meant for something much more grand and glorious. I'm a royal child of the king. I'm not going to be reduced to this. I shouldn't be looking at this. This rage and bitterness that pours out of me and spills on people I love, that is not a freedom. It's not the freedom of what I was free to do because I'm saved. I'm a child of Jesus. I'm an image bearer of God. And I'm not going back to that quicksand. I'm not running back into that burning building. I'm not going back to slurping vomit. No, not me. And if that is what you hear today, and if the cry of your heart when you hear a passage is this, not me, God, help me, no, not me, it's a pretty good evidence that you're his. And he's going to keep you. He's going to hold you. And this is part of the way he'll do it. Father, help us this morning with this word. There's so much at stake, all of eternity. We live in a time that would do pollute us and ruin us and, and, and reduce us to these sniveling, horrible things. You've saved us for something so much more. Now prepare us as we prepare to take of the most precious and holy pictures we have of the depth of your love and grace to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are His, if your heart is surrendered to Him this morning, I invite you to take this meal. Some of you may not have, uh, today we are serving it in the prepackaged. It's not our preferred way, but we think of the situation probably is better. If you are here and you need these elements, you don't have them, please raise your hand. Uh, we have men that will come and get men. If you would come on out and uh, service out here, please. You, if you do not have them. You might, as you have it, just note that uh, you go ahead and halfway prepare it. There's a clear cellophane on top that will open the bread for you. If you peel that back, maybe just halfway. The more difficult part, take the cellophane and peel it back just above. I need to say some things to you before we take the meal together. If my poem was a first, what I'm about to say is probably another first, but much more, I believe, significant. Since we're talking about pigs, I want to use pigs to lay out the glory of the gospel. And I hope make vivid to you the clarity of God's love for you. I'm flowing out of Andrew Wilson's delightful book, God of All Things, where he makes this point. He says about pigs that no animal is dirtier, smellier, or uglier than a pig. And in my humble opinion, that's correct. There is that unfortunate combination of snouts and snorts that make them deeply unattractive. We've already talked about what they roll around in. Pigs have become a byword for mess. Your room is a pigsty. For infidelity, he is such a pig. For ignorance, don't cast your pearls before swine. Or gluttony, greedy as a pig. This morning, more than a billion people in this world will not eat or touch pigs or big pig products. And they do so on religious grounds. They consider them filthy and untouchable. Jews of Jesus' day certainly were among those people. In the Old Testament, when Isaiah wanted to think of abominable people who did abominable things, he thought of people like you and me, Gentiles. And among the things that Gentiles did that was so gag-producing 
Well, it's in Isaiah 65, 4, they eat pig's flesh. But pigs do taste great, don't they? What smells better than sizzling bacon? I mean, I love brewed coffee and fresh bread, but sizzling bacon, I'm going to put it at the top every time. Andrew Wilson in his book says, if you were to create a smell spectrum from the vilest stench to the most enticing aroma, pigs would find themselves on both ends, depending on whether it was before or after they died. How can something that smells so bad when it's alive smell so great when it isn't? How can death transform something so filthy and untouchable to something so aromatic and delightful? There are a number of pig events in the Bible. The most famous one, perhaps, is when Jesus, coming out of the Sea of Galilee, delivered a demon-possessed, oppressed man, only to send the demons around him, a herd of 2,000 of pigs, those demons into those pigs, and they promptly charged down a cliff, and they drowned in the sea. That man who was saved may very well have been a Gentile, and I think we are meant to see ourselves in this poor, broken, demonized man. He is unclean, he is impure, he's an outsider, surrounded by pigs, unable to access the presence of the people of God. And particularly if you're a Gentile here this morning, you hear from that line completely. He lived among the tombs with death all around him. He lived naked, ashamed, without hope, without God, and so did we. He was oppressed by the powers of darkness, crying out in pain and harming himself beyond the reach of any human power. So are we. And then he met Jesus. The Savior not only sets him free from the devil's tyranny, he humiliates his enemies and our enemies by driving them and all their uncleanness and impurity, everything they represent, down the cliff and into the water. The story ends with a new man with a new mission told to go back to his town, back to his community, back to his family, back to his workplace, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Pigs have died, but in their death, this man has found new life and has been thoroughly delivered from the powers that oppressed him and the uncleanness that tainted him, and so have we. Like the prodigal son who found himself eating with pigs, one day God in his grace did something in our heart where we began to stumble towards our father desperate for something more than pig pods and reeking of swine. And when we get to the Father, we are amazed to find that He is ready to hug us and kiss us and dress us with new, beautiful clothes and to invite us to a feast. In Christ, pigs become bacon. It's the welcome of God. And the one who made that possible is the one who died for us in a place of stench and shame and filth. We sang a moment ago, he put on our sins and bore our shame. And there in that filthy place and condition, his body is broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And now for those who are his, his he has commanded us and we are privileged to now eat this bread and drink this cup in remembrance of him.
Okay, before we go, there's one last thing. I want you to look around. Front, back, as much as you can. Look around. Look at the people nearby you. Let me tell you something about what you're looking at. You wouldn't want to be in a room with these people, less, much less in a church with these people. I mean, these people before Christ were stinking, snorting, snuffling sinners. But you know what we all have in common together this morning? What unites us and makes us together in Christ? In Christ, we've experienced death, and we find ourselves welcomed into the kitchen for everybody to enjoy and to savor. The stench dies, impurity is washed away. We who were once unclean become a pleasing, crispy, tasty, aromatic offering to God. And the words of Peter, not in this letter, but in Acts chapter 10, right after he had learned to eat pork, he said to a bunch of Gentiles who was invited into the kingdom of God, what God has made clean, do not call common. And that is the brothers and sisters who sit around you. So today, let us go and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you.